everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Debating Metal. I am your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. And today, we wrap up our deep dive into the new wave of British heavy metal. We're going to pick it up in the late 1980s as the scene has lost momentum and is giving way to the glam and thrash metal scenes gaining appeal in America, as well as the resurgence of the scene in the 2000s. While some bands fell apart, changed genres, or reformed with many, many different lineups, some never left New Album and waved the banner to this day. And finally, we're going to give you our big four new wave of British heavy metal bands at the end of all this. It's been a long journey, and we thank you for coming along, so let's finish this up. Chris, the new wave of British heavy metal part three, basically it's an episode of Where Are They Now? To some degree, yeah, that's that's kind of where things are. Um so we're going to kind of start off with some of those, you know, second wave bands that we talked about previously. Um, but specifically, we're going to talk about a band that we we kind of missed uh, in the first two episodes in a way. They had a little bit different sound. Uh, so it's I think it's more apropos even to just talk about them here as one collective of their career. So basically, we're talking about Raven, um, who started in 1974 and when they were just teenagers, there was uh, the brothers, John and Mark Gallagher. Um, and then they were joined by their friend, Rob Wacko Hunter on drums. And John John Gallagher was, vo- was the vocalist and the bassist. And then Mark was just a guitar player. So there's only three of them. So that's pretty cool. They've always, I think they've always been a trio from, if I'm not mistaken. Aside from like before they released anything. Yeah, they've been a trio. Okay. So they started, they, they were... Formed in Newcastle, England, 1974, when John and Mark were just teenagers. Um, but they didn't really pick up any major steam until the new wave of British heavy metal kind of hit. Um, but they were a little different. And, and even though their first album, I would say that uh, Rock Until You Drop, that came out in 1981, that came out in the midst of the new wave of British heavy metal. But it, you could tell there was something a little different from them. Um, a little faster... A little, a little edgier in, in a way. Um, and then in 82, they came out with Wiped Out, which at that point now, they're definitely more along the speed metal kind of vibe. But still, there's elements of the new wave of British heavy metal, but a little bit faster. And then All for One came out in 83, and that really kind of set them apart, and they really weren't new wave of British heavy metal. And the funny thing about that one is all, all for one got them a distribution deal in the United States, um, through Megaforce records, oddly enough. And that brought them over to the United States to do a tour with newfound band Metallica in 1983 for the, uh, kill them all for one tour. Um, which if anybody, uh, is familiar with that Metallica just put tickets for sale recently for a show one-off show in fort uh, not fort lauderdale but it's it's somewhere over there at the hollywood hard rock uh casino in i guess hollywood florida and they're doing a show with raven and it's going to be comprised from metallica for only Kill them all and ride the lightning song. So that's pretty cool. So I wonder what Raven set's going to be like. But that's, that, that should be pretty interesting. Anyhow, um, that's where Raven started going off and becoming a little bit different. They were a little bit speed metal, a little bit heavier, a little bit edgier. Unfortunately, 
a few years later, they come out with Stay Hard. They signed to Atlantic Records. And Atlantic decided, hey, we want you to be a little more commercial. We signed you as this band, but we think you could be this band. And there we go again. Record companies fucking shit up. And literally almost put Raven in the grave before they even started. Because it completely changed their sound. It completely changed everything about the band. Almost kind of brought them back a little bit to the new wave of British heavy metal. But it it almost destroyed the band from the inside out at that point. So Stay Hard, to me, is not that bad. There are more glam elements on it. um, But it's not as bad as what would follow with the Pack is Back. Um, the, the the preceding year, or proceeding year, I should say. Um, but, it, yeah, Stay Hard, it, it, you can definitely feel like it's not the same. Uh, up to that point, there's a lot of people that call them the godfathers of thrash. Because even though they didn't play thrash, that speed metal kind of led into what would become thrash in a lot of ways. Um, but... You, you hear albums like Stay Hard and then The Pack Is Back, which almost ruined their career. Um, really, you, you said it almost put them in the grave. That's that's pretty accurate. Um, so up until that point, I mean, I think All For One to me is my favorite of their albums at that point. Uh, but Rock Until You Drop and Wiped Out are both great. Oh, no, the, those albums are awesome. And actually, I mean, I went through them the other day and listened to them. And... Um, you you know you and I were talking about it briefly, and we dis- I discovered that they re-released the albums on vinyl, and basically like in all original packaging, which is absolutely the coolest thing I've I've seen when it comes to these reissues, because this is like legitimately taking something from way back in the day and doing an exact replica of what it was back then and releasing it in today's standards um, to the point where there's an OB strip so you don't see a UPC on the back. Uh, I mean, it's super cool. Um, I'm hoping that um, it's not a matter of like remastering the album or anything like that. Just leave it the way it was. And if that's the case, these are excellent reissues. Um, but continuing on with Stay Hard, the pack is back, and then the Mad EP that came out uh, a little bit later. I actually have Stay Hard, and I thought that was a pretty good album because I wasn't that familiar with Raven in terms of like the wiped out all for one and Rock Until You Drop era, that that original era of theirs. Mm. So it was catchy, like the song On and On was catchy. Stay Hard was was catchy. It was not to me. It wasn't like glammy or poppy or anything like that it was just different you know and it has some glammy elements yes it had glammy elements to it it's not a bad album at all no really and so i thought it was pretty good myself you know listening to it and but when the pack is back came back out or came out i was like yeah no this is they went in another direction they went in another direction that i just didn't quite get and so when they did the Mad EP, you could tell, uh, I believe that the cover has, uh, I can't remember, I don't think it's, it's Rob Hunter on the front, it's one of the Gallagher brothers, but it was, you could tell, just by the cover, it seemed like something was different about the band, and then you could tell that they were kind of going back to their original sound, um, but it was, obviously, you, you put it on and you could tell, okay, yeah, so Raven's, Raven's kind of doing what they used to do. Um, 
But after that, I kind of lost when they they got dropped by the company. I think a, a few years later, and Rob left in '88. Uh, I kind of lost touch with the band at that point. I knew they were around because I had seen some of the the albums come out here and there over the years, but I I just never really got back into them. Um, I mean, the Mad EP is really good. I I think that was yeah. I mean, definitely a return to the more aggressive sound. Um, I I actually enjoy that one a lot. A lot. Life's a bitch is really good, um, and then a lot of their material afterward I think was really good. They they had up until that point they had just those three core members, but then Joe Hasselvander joined them in 1988, uh, replacing Rob Hunter on drums. And Joe Hasselvander, if you're familiar with Pentagram, I think some of you listeners might be, um, was their original drummer. So he stayed with the band until I want to say it was like 2018, 2019 when he had a heart attack and then he, he didn't want to continue on. He just said touring, the touring life was too much. Um, and they replaced him with Mike Heller in 2020. So, um, you know, that's, that's understandable kind of wanting to, to get out of that, that lifestyle if it's, if it's detrimental to your health. Um, but I think it's really cool that they're, in their career, they've really only had just a few members of that band. Well, yeah, part of that's due to two of them being brothers, you know, so they, they're... that. But there's another set of Gallagher brothers that don't like each other. <laughs> that's right. There is. Yes. Um, but, you know, um, I mean, not all brothers always get along, you know, but what I've noticed is if, if the brothers do get along, they're, they stay tight forever. You know, you think about the, the Van Halen brothers... Uh, you talk mm-hmm. about um, Lizzie Borden, who um, his he, the, the vocalist, yeah, you know Lizzie his and his guitarist brother, brother, right? No, his his brother Joey is uh, the drummer. Is the drummer? That's right. Okay. Right. You know. Then you got Raven. Uh, there, they've been together. You know, f- for a long time. And then yes, there, there there's the opposite. You got Chris Chris and Rich Robinson from the Black Crows, who basically for the longest time couldn't stand each other and then i think for money they got back together <laughs> recently um and then obviously uh uh what's their face oasis with the liam and noel gallagher yeah they can't they don't even want each other on the same planet <laughs> that's gonna be a little tough i'm just saying unless one of them goes to mars that's gonna be a little tough it's becoming more and more feasible, but we probably will not have an Oasis episode, I would imagine. Yeah, no, <laughs> not not having that. So anyway, Raven was pretty cool. Um, I would be remiss if we did not mention them, only because they were part of that scene, but they splintered off. Um, so where are we going from here? All right, so let's talk about Tokyo Blade. We mentioned them in the last episode. Um, so to kind of recap, so they, they broke up. And then they had a disastrous release with no remorse. Um, the only member of that band at that time was Andy Bolton, uh, which was one of the guitarists. And then they released Burning Down Paradise in 1995. So this is a, a kind of a, a return to some degree because it's made up of members of a band called Pump House, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, and then uh, Tokyo Blade. So... Alan Marsh returns on vocals. He's the original vocalist. And John Wiggins returns on guitars, original guitarist. So you have Andy Bolton, 
uh, Alan Marsh and John Wiggins are along with Colin Riggs and Mark Angel. And now those guys come from Pump House, with who, who was uh, the band for the lead singer, Alan Marsh. So you see you have basically a combination. The record company said, you guys should work together again and uh, you know basically combine these two products. So... Burning Down House is not, or sorry, Burning Down Paradise is not bad. Um, but there, then there's a, a release in 1998 called Pump House. So that's actually the band Pump House, but it was released under Tokyo Blade because they wanted the name out there. They didn't really think uh, it would be successful with its actual name. Now, did Pump House, did, did Pump House include uh, Alan Marsh and John Wiggins? So it included Alan Marsh, Colin Riggs, and Mark Angel. Okay. And so Jez Lee was the guitarist and Ian Attila Marshall on keyboards. So it's a completely different band, but what ended up being half of Tokyo Blade, and thus they released it as a Tokyo Blade album. So it's not, if you're a Tokyo Blade fan by chance, um, this is not technically a Tokyo Blade album. And so the next one that was really released was Thousand Men Strong in 2011, then Unbroken in 2018, Dark Revolution 2020, and Fury in 2022. So they've been releasing stuff ever since. Now they, Alan Marsh did leave for one album and then returned again in 2018. So they, they kind of still have... Um, actually, I want to say in... in 2011 that was like a full tokyo blade reunion to some degree because andy Wrighton came back and steve pierce the original drummer uh so you had like a full kind of uh return to form except for that was the album that didn't have alan marshall and vocals so at the, but he did re- return after that and ever since it's been kind of like a classic lineup reunion so that's you know i understand that and it's tough logistically when you're not a huge band sometimes to get everybody together that was meaningful impactful on that band but it's nice to see that they've kind of come back to i would say the better days you know the the tokyo blade or night of the blade lineups you know so that's cool give give the newer stuff a listen definitely it's not I wouldn't say as good as is those really classic albums, but it is it is pretty good, and the instrumentation's a lot better than some of that junk in the middle. <laughs> what I've noticed about a lot of these bands is that you you have two two ways of approaching the not not the reunions of it, but the continuation of the bands, and you have you have the approach of we need to remain in this course this manner of recording this manner of writing songs because this is who we are from 1980 on or whatever and you have the bands that try to update their sound try to update their recording techniques try to update their songwriting and to me they kind of lose focus somewhere in the middle is the best place for a lot of these bands to be and we'll talk about a few artists that that are able to do that um i i think if you steer too far away from where your original sound was, you're going to lose the fact that you were that band. You just now become any other band at that point. And I think, I think uh, Tokyo Blade was just all over the place. 
you know, to me, there's there's really no one set sound for them because they've had so many different singers back and forth. You know, the, the guitar player changed, you know, the band has changed. So it's kind of like, yeah, they're all reunited now, but do they sound the same as they did back then? Or do they remotely come close to being the same type of band as, as it were back then? I don't know. You know, it's... It's close. Being that Night of the Blade has been re-released with Alan Marsh's original vocals before the... The, the actual release. So he recorded vocals, then they replaced him, put Vicky James Wright on vocals. So the the reissue has both versions, I believe. Right. So you so now you have the first album, second album, and then this newer stuff with the the essentially the same lineup they had from Night of the Blade. And that's kind of cool and it does feel similar it feels like they kind of went back to basics listen to what they they started as but it's still a modernization of that sound so i think it's more accessible if you are a fan of those earlier albums but there's a there's a chunk from 1985 to like 2010 or so 2011 that's just a passable just pass it don't even really try unless you're just curious see and that and to me that's what messes up the legacy of bands like that you know if if you've got a period of time because there's so much fluctuation and so much uh things going on in terms of personnel that you're messing up the legacy of the band but i mean you could say that for black sabbath because they they black sabbath is different i mean every era is different they sound completely different all three of them four of them whatever you want to call it but every era has its own fans so correct it reality is reality and it's it's subjective, but the difference is Black Sabbath still had some good music in all those times. <laughs> so. That's true. All right, so next up, um, speaking of these bands that kind of change sound or, or not change sound, um, one band that's very interesting in all of this is Grim Reaper, or or as it ended up being uh, called, it was Steve Grimmett's Grim Reaper. Um, you know, going all the way back to, you know, starting in 1979 and then they released their three, you know, 80s albums, See You in Hell, Rock You to Hell and or See You, See you in Hell, Fear No Evil and then Rock You to Hell in that order. Um, you know, the band had their heyday, you know, so then they kind of disbanded at the end of that because they kind of were, were they morphed into a a harder glam metal kind of band trying to keep their foot into the original new wave of British heavy metal Grim Reaper sound. But then they was like, we need to become more commercial. So they were keeping the evil part of it, but still trying to be glammy at the same time. Um, they ended up, you know, disbanding in 88 for all sorts of record company and management reasons and all that stuff. But in nine, in 20, excuse me, but in 2006, they reformed um, because basically they, people want them. The fans wanted them to get back together. They, you know, they knew Nick Bocott, uh was doing those columns for for guitar for the practicing musician or Guitar World. I can't remember which magazine it was, but so they knew he was around. And then you know, um, with Lionheart, uh, Lions, with, oh Lions, with Steve Grimmett being in Lionsheart. Um, he kept hearing, hey, get back together, get back together, get back together, reunite, reunite, reunite. Um, problem was... People in the crowd yelling, see you in hell, you yeah, know, stuff like that. You know, yeah. And that's cool. You know, it, that's a really cool feeling if you're the vocalist or, or if you're Steve Grimmett. Um, but Nick Bocott lived in the United States. Uh, so that made uh, 
a, a, a true reunion kind of impossible. Although I I disagree to that to that extent. I don't know if it was just because of straight logistics and they, they wanted to get into the same room. I mean, dude, one of them could have taken a trip. To, to England or the other other one could have taken a trip to the United States, work out something, and they say, okay, look, let's put together a new album. You can send the tapes back and forth, and then that's it. I mean, it, I don't know. It, it seemed to me like Nick made it more of like, I don't really want to be involved. But He, he, he didn't want to be involved unless he was touring. Like, he wanted to do that, but it, I don't think he 100% wanted to be involved. Like, it was just... I think if, if maybe they were touring the u.s it would have been a little different right but um yeah to some degree i think it's just one of those things where it it didn't work out and he was like yeah well you you just tour you know which was nice of him so he allowed steve to reform the band under the moniker grim reaper but then he had to add steve, steve grimmitz on it because nick wasn't part was not involved but so that's it, it fine. wasn't even that he had to it was, he even suggested it because he didn't want to fool anybody, which I think is really cool. You know, some of these bands, they, they want the name, they just go under the name, and it, and it does fool people. They go and they go, well, where are the guys? You know, where <laughs> who are these well, people? Yeah, but, it, but then again, you look at something, you know, bands like Wasp. It's just Blackie Lawless. It's always been Blackie Lawless since the yes. mid-'80s. So, you know, there's no fooling. You know, no, no, if, no. That's different, though, because that's the vocalist. And you go, okay, it would be weird to go see Wasp, and it's just like, you know, a a, a guy that played on one album, you know, and you're well, like, that's like or, you know, Stephen Riley's L.A. Guns. It's just a yes, drummer. Yes, exactly. But, but this is Steve Grimmett. This is the voice of of Grim Reaper. I don't think he should have. He should have just called a Grim Reaper because he's the voice and he's the main guy. But he's you know, a good guy. And he's a he good understood. Guy. So. I get it. You know, so like I said, I have no problem with that. So they came to that agreement. So they released an album in 2016 under Steve Grimmett's Grim Reaper. Album's called Walking in the Shadows. I put it this way. That's not a bad album. And it continues the, the legacy that they created in the 80s, which was great because it, it – it's exactly what I was saying before about Tokyo Blade. There was so much, you know, dysfunction basically that you don't know if it's really Tokyo Blade. And in reality, it wasn't. It was a pump house, you know, album. So you look at at this album, Walking in the Shadows from Grim Reaper, and you say, you know what? This sounds like Grim Reaper. This has songwriting like Grim Reaper. This obviously has the vocalist from Grim Reaper. This sounds and is Grim Reaper. That's pretty yeah. cool, you know. And even then, you know, it's a more modern recording. But there's something about it. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is Grim Reaper. Now, that being said, they released another album in 2019 called At The Gates. You can tell at this point that, that Steve's voice is changing. I don't know. Maybe his balls finally dropped after 40 years. I don't know what the deal was. But but it was a, the tone was off. And that, you know what? That's age. That's, that's not a, a thing. I was just joking about the balls dropping. Um <laughs> his his age his age caught up to his voice not that it was bad he still can sing and he still had good vocals but i, I it was like um I, I guess you know like a lot of modern day singers all the bands tuned down because he can't reach that pitch on a regular basis that was at the gates doesn't take away anything from the songs and the recording or anything like that it's a it's a pretty decent album that just for whatever reason 
you say to yourself, eh, this is not exactly a Grim Reaper type album. So it may have had to do with his health problems because if True. you remember, he fell and he broke his leg and they had to get it amputated. And that was in 2017. So in between 16 and, and the album from 16 and, and 19, there's that difference of, of his lifestyle um, health, etc. So it may have affected his vocals. I still think it's a really good album. Um, I actually really enjoy both of these. Um, but yes, Walking in the Shadows, I think, is, is a bit superior to At the Gates. Um, but you could tell, like, the guy was still doing what he wanted to do up until his passing, you know, in tw- this year, right? Yes, so- I mean, the, the unfortunate side for all of this is that Steve Grimmett ended up passing away uh, just a few months ago, really. And so that brings an end to Grim Reaper in that regard, because I doubt Nick Bocott's going to do anything again with it. Um, and it's just sad. So there is, there is, uh, from what I understand, a, an album that was being finished in, in, in the works or some music, at least that was, that was in the works that's being finished. I know a live album just came out. So it, that stuff like that is, it, you know, it's, it's sad because you, you think they could have continued, but, and he tried and he did the best he could. And like, I agree with you. Yes. The, the accident may have had some effect on his vocals, may have had some effect on his attitude and yeah. you can tell, you know, but again, nothing wrong. The album was very decent for what it was, you know. Um, so it's a shame that he ended up passing away uh, at, at this point in time in their career. Um, you know, Grim Reaper had a very distinguished two periods of time because they were definitely, you know, between 1988 and 2006 is a long period of time. They were inactive. Yes. You know, um, so the fact that they reformed and, they, and people were still into them was pretty cool. I think it, it was it was uh they did not hurt the legacy with these these two albums, Walking in the Shadows and At the Gates. Not at all. Did we mention that uh, Nick Bocott played a, a show with them when they first came to the U.S. in 2014? We did not. So I think that's pretty cool. So like when they did make it over to the U.S. for the first time in you know decades, basically, um, their first show in the U.S. Nick Bocott did play with them. That's pretty that cool. That is very cool. That is very cool. So so you could tell there was really no animosity between Nick and Steve. It's just one of those logistics type of things. They they had moved each of them had moved on in their lives in different paths, you know. But they yes. crossed paths at some point again and, and, and made good on it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna mention two back to back pretty quick ones. Um, this there's not much to talk about here, uh, but if you are a fan, uh, there has been several releases since their resurgence in the 2000s, and this is Clovenhoof uh, we mentioned last time. So not much of a of a, a career early on, and we saw a lot of upheaval um, with different members, etc. But Basically, Clovenhoof would reunite in 2000, and by reunite, I mean one member came back, and then they would, uh, you know, have a revolving door of, of members. Uh, Russ North, we mentioned on the previous episode, was a vocalist. He came back for one more album, um, and then would kind of come back and forth in the band. I think he's he's uh, he's been in and out, but only recorded one more album. Uh, so since this time, they've re- recorded five albums including one this year um but they do have their fan base and they do have uh you know a a little bit of resurgence since the 2000s um so you know if if you enjoy clovenhoof or just want to find some of these bands that you know we don't talk about as much i think it's worth noting it's not bad music 
I've listened to uh, a bit of each of these albums, and I'm like, okay, this is this is you know entertaining at least. Um, but you might find something different in it that I don't. So uh, definitely worth kind of just looking into because there is, especially early on that first album, there's some pretty good stuff there. So any any thoughts? The other stuff was good. Um, I'm not really into the latter stuff. It's just just is you know it's almost like a nameless faceless band at that point you know you got a, the original bass player it's it's one of those things where it, if you don't have the original singer or the second singer or whatever it is that that made made the band famous it, it's like what are you doing it for well that's the thing is they had a different singer on every album so it's really hard to right so, <laughs> to so nail to down. Me, exactly and things like that it's kind of like you're you're just using a name but because in reality, it sounds different every single time. Yeah. You know, so I, I, to me, that's one of those things where it's kind of like it, it's a nameless, faceless band. It's hard. You know? to, it's hard to get into, but if you if you do find something in it, there's there's a commonality of the sound of each album, and I think that's the only thing they have going for them in that regard. Where, like, if you're a listener and you can find that, like, say all the members were the same except for a, a different singer every time you would still find probably some commonality in the sound of the band other other than the vocalists obviously um but that that even is tough even if you had all the same members every time but regardless the newer incarnation i think is a little probably easier to find that that rhythm you know find the the similarities in each of the albums because for the most part it's been similar members of the band but anyway moving on to one more uh that we'll kind of go over pretty quickly uh angel witch so angel witch had most of their their like big part of their career in 1985-1986, they released Screaming and Bleeding and Frontal Assault. And I think both of those albums are really great. Uh, obviously, they had their, their first album, Angel Witch, before that, which I think is is absolutely fantastic. That, that, that uh, what do you, title track, sorry, that title track is just so catchy. Um, so it's, it's a band that I've pretty much enjoyed everything they've released and this these two albums that they released in 2012 and 2019 to me are no exception um they're really kind of from two different lineups two different eras of the band and you can really think of angel witch as kevin hayborn's project because he's really had different members in every incarnation of it um you know this uh 2012 as above so below was their first album since 1986 and that's a huge gap um but again kevin hayborn had been active in different bands different projects etc all that time so he never really went away from music this is just him returning to his side project essentially and it's the first that he did vocals on since the first album because david tatum was vocals before that uh due to kevin's issues with his vocal cords but he had solved it by this time um he puts together you know a, a, a two different incarnation incarnations of the band and then releases angel of light in 2019 as well and i i actually really enjoy both of these albums they're a lot heavier than some of the stuff that came up before his vocals i i like a bit more than david tatum's so 
I, I think these are also definitely worth checking out. I I listened to them, and as above, so below is pretty cool. It to me, it sounds like Angel Witch, uh, but a more modern version of it. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. I mean, it, it, when you have your main songwriter and singer and guitar player. There's there right there. You understand this is the, this is his project. This is his baby. So it's gonna sound like something that he put together. So it's gonna sound cohesive in that regards. Okay, and so that's what makes it sound like Angel Witch. Um, the album is is uh, is pretty good. The songs are pretty good. Um, the only thing I I could say is it is not good is the drum sound. It sounds. Like they took the drums from a garage and they went ahead and said, "Oh, we'll use those tapes." And then they went into the studio and did a regular recording for the rest rest of the instruments. It's just kind of weird sounding. I think the drums could have been better, um, to the point like the snare almost sounds like it's broken type of thing. Um, but that that's that's just a nitpicking. You know, the songs themselves are pretty good. The rest of the recording is is pretty decent. So, and like I said, the album and the songs are are, are done well. It's Angel Witch, modern Angel Witch, and then Angel of Light. Um, interestingly enough, you know, goes along that same veins. It's even even lower budget in in my in my opinion, sound wise. Um, uh, I think they expanded a little bit more on the Angel Witch sound or on the Angel Witch uh, uh, galaxy. You want to put it that way. That the their whole realm is now a little bit wider. They, he expanded his songwriting in in Angel of Light, which is pretty good. Um, so. It, Right, that's what I going to say. There's another dimension to Angel Witch now with this album, which is pretty good. I mean, you think about it, you know, very similar to Grim Reaper. There was a long period of time that Angel Witch, even though they were on and off together throughout the 90s, you know, the, you know, they, they disbanded officially in, in 1990, and the, the band itself, re, you know, uh, reformed in 97, 98, been in the 2000s. But, they didn't record anything since 1986. So uh, it's a big period of time where there was nothing going on, you know, music wise. They just toured for the longest time as, as um, Angel Witch, you know, basically living, living off the legacy. Um, but these two albums don't hurt the legacy. They actually expand it, which is pretty good. So I'll go with that. Um, Going on from here, um, Girl School. Um, I think Girl School um, is, a, is a definitely a band that we need to talk about in this regards because they're kind of like hidden. They're kind of like uh, tucked away in the corner somewhere, but yet they still exist. Um, so we talked a little bit about Girl School last time. They were kind of one of the moderate successes. Um, they still are. Um you know they formed in 1978. Um, we've talked about them last episode. They they uh, have basically been from that point on a working band all the way up to now. Um, but in the 80s, they tried to make, or in the mid 80s, put it that way, they tried to make it in America. So they tried to be a little more commercial. They tried to be a little more glam. Uh, they tried to be more accepting of what was going on over here to kind of break their new ground in the United States, which is always difficult. You know, uh, English bands, that's their goal. They want to make it in the United States. You can make it in Europe and you're okay, but if you make it in the U.S., you've made it. 
And so, you know, bands like Motorhead and Iron Maiden and Def Leppard, all those bands were making it in the U.S. And Motorhead, I, I put that loosely because Motorhead was kind of like so steady, but yet they still had a really strong following in the U.S. Um, and since they were friends with Girls School, that's why I'm kind of I kind of mentioned them. But Girls School tried, and it, it just failed. Their their experiment to become more commercial in the U.S. failed. So they retreated and went back to England. And basically from that point forward, they have remained a working band. They have remained a recording unit and have recorded several albums over the years. Um, And and they've only, you know, between being a four-member band, they have maintain two of the mem- two out of the four members so half the band has been the same the entire time which is really cool um and some of the members have just basically been going in and out the same two or three or four additional members have just come and gone back and forth so they they have they don't have a very long list of members in the band maybe six or seven which is pretty cool you know that's so this bass player who you know uh tracy lamb she decides that she wants to leave so she gets replaced by gil weston jones and then she decides to come back and then you know it's it's one of those things where it's the same person coming back they just kind of keep taking a break i like that because you know what it keeps consistency you have the same chemistry you know and so they they have been working together over the years they've put some decent music out i think for the most part, girls school has literally just, they never really veered too far off the beaten path that they had created for themselves. Songwriting wise, musically and, 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 you know, touring wise, they've basically been a European act this mostly this whole time. And they've not really strayed too far away from that. And like I said, musically, they haven't gone you know, to, to do a symphonic album or they, they haven't done anything where they wanted to do a, a concept album. They've just been themselves. And that's pretty cool. On the, the downside to it, they haven't released any new music since 2015. Um, but the music they did release, like I said, was is Girl School. You're going to pick it up and you're going to hear it and you say, yep, that's Girl School. So that's that's the good thing. Bad thing is they, they are still an active band, but they haven't done anything new musically since 2015. Yeah, there was, there was a... One thing I want to mention was, so they did their 21st anniversary album in 2002. Uh, It was called Not That Innocent. And basically they were trying to get back, you know, the original lineup. They were trying to do, you know, a a kind of big grandiose album. And the production ended up taking a really long time. And during that time, Kelly Johnson, their guitarist, uh, had to leave the band because she actually was diagnosed with spinal cancer. So she had been diagnosed in 1999, but the effects had really taken a toll on her. And the album wasn't released until 2002. I think there was like five years of production on this this album. So the other thing was that Tracy Lamb was actually recording on it as well, but ended up leaving and was replaced by the original bassist, Enid Williams. So kind of interesting that they they had such you know, back and forth with these members coming in and out of the band. But this album, it's kind of sad that it didn't work out as well because it is not that bad, but it's kind of all over the place. There's a lot of different ideas, a lot of different thoughts, but it's one, it's one definitely worth checking out because it does have a lot of original members coming back into it. Um, In some degree, like 
it's not the the mess that kisses psycho circus is but in, in some capacity i almost feel like it's a similar concept you know have these guys come back but they only record on a couple songs here and there and this and that and it's it's a little bit overproduced it's a little bit overdone so kind of similar story in some degree just not as much trauma (laughs) (laughs) exactly all right so what do you got um let's talk kind of quickly about um praying mantis so praying mantis um you know we mentioned in the previous episode or actually on the first episode that we did on here and then they didn't really have anything in that time in the middle um but then in 1990 this you know idea comes along we're gonna reform and we're gonna bring on two mem- former members of iron maiden and that's paul diano and dennis stratton so it's not really it's it's kind of questionable. Is it a, is it an actual band with these members, or is it just a project? You know, and they're going to record some music or, or live stuff, or you know, it, 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 they're listed as a f- official members. But uh, it's got Tino Troy, Chris Troy, uh, and then they've got Bruce Brisland or Bruce Bisland on drums. Um, it so they released live at last in 1990, like. We've been waiting all these years for the live Praying Mantis album. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm a little puzzled by the name, but, but give it a listen. It is really interesting. You have a little bit older sounding uh, uh, Paul Diano here. You've got Dennis Stratton singing on some songs, which he has a really nice voice, actually. Um, playing some versions of Lionheart songs um iron maiden stuff right is on there oh yeah and then uh obviously praying mantis so it's kind of an interesting uh album to be honest you got uh i thought was a really cool version of a song that i didn't really think much of before which is called dangerous game uh from lionheart and uh, I was very surprised by this release as a whole because I, I wasn't aware of it existing for the longest time. Um, but it's it's kind of a cool, um, you know, live album. Um, all these years we waited for Praying Mantis. But, <laughs> you know, I listened to it the other day and, and I'm like, to me, you know, like you said, is this a project? Is this a band? Um to me, this was forced upon all the players involved, um, you know, at a suggestion. And yeah, someone said, oh, that's a good idea. And so they decided to do it. Um, in reality, the execution, as fun as it was, and it, the, as fun as it seemed to be when they, were, when, they, when they made this recording, it's not, to me, it's one of those things where it's like, is this Praying Mantis or not? You know, what is it? Because they played these Iron Maiden songs, they, you know, they have nothing to do with Praying Mantis. Yeah. They did these Lionheart songs that have nothing to do with Praying Mantis. So it, it's kind of like trying to give the fans a, a big, you know, party for stuff that they were, that, that they were fans of. That's great. When, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, that's great. But, in the, the, the niche that is Pring Mantis, I don't think it helped the legacy whatsoever. Um, obviously, they went on to do a, a shitload of albums throughout the 2000s or you know late 90s and 2000s, but 
there's so much upheaval. I I don't think there's any continuity. I don't think there's any any particular path that this particular band created. It's just like, all right, you're in the band. Oh no, you're in the band. This singer's in the band. That singer's in the band. That, that to me is just bullshit. I I I'm not big into having a million members in the band and every single member changes. You know, it just it's it's just nuts. You know, and, and yeah, so there's one there's one guy that everything rotates around, but is it really, you know, is it really the the band? That's that's my problem with it. So just to kind of elaborate on what he's saying, it so we have over the course of ten albums, you have Dennis Stratton on vo- lead vocals, Colin Peel on lead vocals, Gary Barden, Tony O'Hora. Doogie White, Martin Freeman, and John Kuipers. I'm going to guess that's how to say that. Uh, and I apologize if I got it wrong. Um, but that's a lot of lead vocalists for 10 albums. Um, that being said, they're the first four that, that uh, in 1990 up to 1998, they are not bad. I listened to Predator in Disguise. Uh, I think that was probably my favorite. I had... Uh, Dennis Stratton on lead vocals. Um, but then A Cry for the New World, uh, To the Power of Ten, Forever in Time. I think all of those have some merit to them. I didn't listen as much to the stuff that came later, but I did give each one a try with the different vocalists. Doogie White, uh, you've probably heard him in, in Rainbow. Um, a great vocalist. Oh, and there's John Sloman as well. He did, So basically... On the journey goes on. It it alternates between Doogie White and John Sloman being the vocalists. So even worse, you know, that just adds to my annoyance. <laughs> I no, I understand that, but at the same time, like there's different time periods too. So from 1990 to 2003, that I think that's one like incarnation of the band to some degree. The only thing they really changed back and forth was the vocalist. Um, 2003 they broke up then 2008 got re- uh, back together and then fi- kind of found more of that like consistency since 2008 um i would say specifically since 2015 that lineup has pretty much stayed the same so it's worth a try it's worth uh, you know finding something cuz here's the other thing that i always find about bands sometimes you can find one album from a band that you just love, but you don't necessarily like the rest of their catalog. So you might find that in this. I think Predator in Disguise, to me, is the the only one that I really would maybe recommend, like checking out. Everything else is kind of negotiable, but Praying Mantis, you know, not a huge band. It, there was one kind of somewhat influential album. That's about it check out some of the rest of this stuff you might find something you like probably maybe in the early 90s that's about it for me i mean look in on every one of these albums there's probably something that somebody's gonna like that i mean we we can't take that away from praying mantis the the problem is is that you know you you sit there and say okay well this is praying mantis well that's praying mantis well that's praying mantis and they're all so different and that that's what kind of like throws me off with this whole (laughs) thing it's like you know like like listening to live at last right they were playing the iron maiden songs pretty good 
I mean, you're but you're talking about Iron Maiden songs that were basically off the first album. Yes, uh, I think they, you know, I think they did one song off of Killers, and for the most part, you're listening to it. And, oh, okay, this sounds like Iron Maiden, but the fuck, you're not there to listen to Iron Maiden. I mean, I get but it. I I don't think so. I think that concert they said that because they marketed it as Praying Mantis. However, they said Praying Mantis with Paul Diano and Dennis Stratton. So you're getting a mix of all those things. Even though Dennis Stratton was a member of Praying Mantis, bringing in Paul Diano, I think, is is where that, that marketing came from, right? So yeah, That was just a, a cash grab. So to me, if they called this Praying Mantis with Paul Diano and Dennis Stratton, you know, a celebration of new wave of British heavy metal or something like that. It would make more sense, but it doesn't necessarily sound as good. Live at Last, I think, is a bullshit name, but it. What else are you gonna call it? You know, like I don't know. So live, you just call it live. Pray, praying Mantis <laughs> with Paul Diano and Dennis Stratton live, or the original yeah, Iron Man live, or something like I don't know. But it, it's right. still an album worth checking out. It just. There's never going to be a, 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 a day or a name of this that makes it like really attention grabbing and, and, you know, something that's going to stand out to people. So it is what it is. You know, I get it. Yes, it is what it is. I get it. You know, you have Paul Diano. You can just sit there and say, hey, you know, we should do an Iron Maiden song. One, two tops. Tops. Okay. Because, like, for instance, Sammy Hagar joins Van Halen, okay? Yeah, they played a couple of Van Halen songs. I mean, excuse me, a, a couple of <laughs> they Sammy They played Hagar all songs. Sammy Hagar songs. And just yeah, it's all Sammy. You know, they did I Can't Drive 55 and... Um, there's only one way to rock. Uh, there's only one way to rock, okay? They didn't go into, you know, playing half of Sammy's old catalog. Well, I'm in the band now. we got to play. No, you're in Van Halen. So, very similar. D- Dennis... Paul, you're in Praying Mantis. I'll give you one to two songs tops as as Iron Maiden. I'm not going to sit here and listen to half a set of Iron Maiden. You know, oh, I, I will because I, I I'm I'm sure I enjoyed it because that was what it was at the time a celebration of of those guys. But to sit there and say, okay, we're gonna put this out as a Praying Mantis album, it's not. You know, and and that's where you know, yes, it's a celebration. I get it. You know, finally, after all these years, we finally got the long, long-awaited live album that we were looking for. <laughs> but, you know, it's just it, to me, it was pointless. But for them, it was a cash grab. I get it. We move on. Fuck, praying mantis. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> that's just stupid. You know, you, you got ten. How many vocalists in ten albums? Come on. What kind? What kind of kind? And that, that they, none of them came back. That's the funny thing. They're all different. They're all different. <laughs> you know, it's like well, what the hell I is mean, that? John, the last guy, came back for three albums. So, and then Tony O'Hara did a couple, I believe. Right? No. Uh, <laughs> so no, he did j- two. J- John Quifers, John Quippers, or whatever his name is. He's the, he's the, the last yes, vocalist, yes. right? So he's done three, three albums. albums. Yeah, I'm assuming he's on 2018 uh, Gravity and Catharsis. Yes, yeah. Okay. But, you know, come on. It's just like a fucking different singer every single time. And it's just, come on. Come on. I mean, and then different drummers. So that means the, the drum sound changes on every album, too. So it's just, come on. I'm done. <laughs> All right. Tigers of Pang Tang. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, 
Tigers of Pang Tang. You know what? Of all the bands in 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 the Brit- the new wave of British heavy metal, they had the coolest name. I, I give you that. And they they were they formed in seventy eight, as we talked about before. They lasted up until eighty four, then decided to come back again the next year. Reformed again until eighty seven, and then um, were defunct until nineteen ninety nine. And then they came back, and they've been together ever since, playing new music and recording new albums. That I can I can sit there and say, you know what, that is noble that they continue to make new music. The problem with that nobility is that the new music up to a certain point wasn't that good. I I could like, I could leave everything after the first breakup all the way up until now or or all the way up until not now, 2016. That, uh, that period of time was just not very memorable when it comes to, um, Tigers. I mean, they they reunited in '99. So they released live at Wacken in '98. Um, they they had Jess Cox as their vocalist, Rob Weir as a guitar player. So you know you have you have this reformation. That's great. And they come out with this album, Mystical, in 2001. It seems like a band is stuck in the '80s that is trying not to be stuck in the 80s. So uh, let me see. Let me read it off exactly like I wrote it. Sounds like a band stuck in the 80s trying not to be stuck in the 90s. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, and it's it's very weird that way. And uh, they got some good riffs on the album. The arrangements leave something to be desired. The album itself is a little disjointed. It seems to me like it's a collection of songs from different time periods. Even though it was recorded relatively all at the same time, you could tell it was not done in like a consecutive studio session, you know, for how like a month. There's just too many variances in the, in the sounds to sit there and say, oh, this was all done at one time. Whatever someone tries to tell me, not, I'm not believing it. But... Well, I mean, there, that makes me think of Cinderella. You remember Cinderella? I think it was their third album. They recorded it in like four or five different studios. Yeah, mm-hmm. same yeah, same exactly. kind of thing. I mean, in some cases, it works. And the reason being is that you have the budget to do that, like a Cinderella, like a Kiss, you know, or, or some bands that record it in several different studios. But it can sound disjointed, though, and that's the thing. It, in, in some cases, it can. If you have the songs, there's a difference between having the songs all demoed out. So you have 10 songs you know you're going to record, but because of time constraints or you have to go on tour or do something you end up having to go to different studios you but you have your core your core uh demos already done so you go to the new studio you set up the drums you try to put it in the same way or or you hope that you got all of one thing recorded at one studio so that let's say you did the 10 demos you got the 10 tra- uh, basic tracks recorded at one studio so now you have to do guitars at another vocals at another that's different okay but when you're when you're in you have songs already written um, and you go to this one studio, you record three or four songs, and then you, you end up going to another studio to record a couple, two or three different songs that you didn't have written the first time. That's when it becomes disjointed, and that's what this album well, sounds that, like. Well, that's what I was referring to with Cinderella, because right. on their third album, they they did like bluesy songs, then they did their kind of like um, 80s 
metal-ish sounding songs, and then there were some other stuff. Are you talking about the third or the fourth album? The third album. Not not Still Climbing, but the one before it. Okay, the one before it. So they they mixed a few styles and things like that, and they deliberately went to different studios and record. Like, if this was going to be a bluesier sounding song, they went to a different studio to record that. And the album, to me, sounds Mm. very disjointed. There's a lot of good material on it, but it sounds disjointed. It doesn't sound cohesive. So I'm... Like the, I felt kind of the same way about what you're talking about, where everything just kind of feels like it's almost like three different albums put together in some way, you know, uh, and right, the recording right. doesn't it, like when you're listening to an album and you're listening to it from beginning to end and it all sounds like it was recorded in the same place, then there's this continuity there where your brain accepts it and you're listening to it. You're not thinking about it. But when each song sounds different and their chording quality sounds different, etc., and it, it, it just throws you off, you know? Even if it was really good, there's still something that's, like, disconnecting there where you're like, this doesn't sound right. Exactly. And... and- this album, Mystical from 2001, is, is all over the place. Um, and part of the issue is you continue on. In 2004, there's Noises from the Cat House, 2008, Animal Instinct, 2012, Ambush. Okay, again, here we go. Different vocalists on almost every album. And so there's no continuity in the band. How do you expect there to be continuity in the sound? Well, from Animal Instinct on, um, it's had this, they've had the same vocalist, uh, Jack Melee or... M- Male or I don't know how to pronounce that last name. I don't know either. It's just it's meal, whatever. <laughs> it, it does matter. matter. I mean, the- he, he's not a bad vocalist. Well, like, no, no, he's not a bad vocalist. He's not a bad vocalist whatsoever. Um, he he's in the band, so we'll say his name is Mealy because there's two L's and E at the end. Jack, Jack, welcome, welcome to the band. I, I he he has kept the continuity going. The thing that's interesting about Tigers, they finally got it together. They finally put together a really good album with the, tig- the self-titled Tigers of Pang Tang in 2016. It's a pretty good album. I like it. And it's also recorded well. So you've now have basically come full circle and you have brought this band deservedly so into the modern era with some good songs essentially trying to keep the legacy of the band intact, although the legacy is a little out of whack. In Ritual, I mean, excuse me, in 2019, they come out with Ritual, not a bad follow-up, okay? A, you know, a little bit of upheaval after the album, but that's okay. It's it's a guitar player and bass player. That's, you know, for lack of a better term, they're replaceable. Um, so you have some structure now in the band. Here's the thing that bugs me about fucking vocalists in general. Jesse Cox, the original vocalist for Tigers of Peng Tang, decides and gets a bug up his ass to say, hey, I'm going to put together my own version of Tigers of Peng Tang, and I'm going to call it Jesse Cox, Tigers of Peng Tang. And then it puts this band together, doesn't record a single lick of new music, okay? And is basically living off the legacy of a band that existed when he first joined the band and has a couple of albums. And that, to me, is like, you you talk about living off your legacy. We could do a whole new episode on all these new jackasses out there that are trying to jump 
and get on the bandwagon of their own old band. Problem is, it, Tigers of Pangtang was so disjointed for so long that there is no legacy for Jesse to join in on until after that point. Because when they re- released Tigers in 2016 and Ritual in 2019, that's when they finally got it together. And it's like, why? Well, I mean, to some degree, I I get it with some of these guys where they're playing the songs that, like Dennis Stratton, right? It's not like he came up and he's doing a tour of of uh, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, you know? He's playing the, sh- the shit that he played on. Th- that's unlike the guy from ACDC. The, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Um, Dave, Evans, Evans. Dave Evans. Dave Evans plays... You know, Highway to Hell. He plays Highway to Hell. <laughs> he <Yeah>. plays Highway <laughs> to Hell, and he had he was out of the band for about forty five years by that point. So, <laughs> it, you know, I get it when, say, for instance, the the Pantera tour that's coming up. People have mixed feelings about it, but at the end of the day, those guys, they were Pantera. It's not like there was any time period when they weren't in it. When that of those songs that they're going to play, you're not going to hear. Phil singing stuff from you know the first Pantera album you know with with uh the glam sound but like you're gonna hear it from Cowboys on and they have the right to play those songs because they are their songs so I get that but at least he wrote the lyrics you know yes at least he wrote the lyrics for it yes well you know, I get that okay it, but, Sebastian but Bach not- Sebastian Bach tours doing uh songs from the first two. Uh, um, Skid Row albums, but he didn't necessarily write those lyrics, but he made those songs. Right, so he made those. He songs has every famous. right to tour. He was those part of the band that made those songs famous. But uh, also, he's the vocalist. I get it more. You know, yes, Jesse Cox was the vocalist. Yes. I get that. Okay, but there's a difference. Sebastian Bach. That album sold what six, seven million True. copies. Everybody around the world knows it. Jesse Cox. You know, they sold what. 100, 500, 1,000, you know, whatever it is, you know, on the, on the first album of Tigers of Pangtang, you know, Metallica knows who they are, but you, you, you're not, you're not, you're, you're living off of a bullshit legacy because you're, li- we don't know if he's it's, living it's off one of it or he's just going, <laughs> no, he's not, trying, he's not making a fucking dime off of the old shit, yeah, I'll tell you that He's right just now. going and, you know, touring and maybe he has a different job or so. I don't know. I doubt he's living off the legacy of that, you know. Well, when I when, when I refer to living off the legacy, I'm not talking about no, in terms I, of, I of a career and, and making money. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that he actually decided to have the, the balls to call a promoter and say, hey, listen, uh, I got a band named Jesse Cox, Tigers of Pang Tang. We are... I'm the original vocalist for Tigers of Pang Tang. I have a whole new band and we're going to be singing songs off the first yeah. album. Okay. So promoter goes, cool. I can sell out a 500-seat arena. I, I get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I th- that to me is is just it's it's a wild concept, and we're going to talk more about it in a, in a band coming up in a little bit. Um, but and I, you know what? Look, look, let me not take anything away from Jesse Cox or Jess Cox, whatever you want to call him. It's just at, at that time, at that time, all those years later, to form a band after the band was completely dysfunctional for so many mm-hmm. years. Okay, to sit there and say, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to become the band. I mean, is is his relationship with whoever 
running Tigers that bad that he couldn't just rejoin the band? I mean, they have a you know? singer. I don't they know. They have they have a singer in place. They're oh, just well, going to fire. Right, like, singer's never been fired. They've had 37 singers. They, they can't fire the guy. have one that's consistent. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's been in the band for 14 years at this point. Longer than Jess Cox was ever in the band. Longer than Jess Cox, exactly. Longer than Jess Cox. Uh, anyway, it's just one of those things that... that, that for in many, many, many cases, that is something that really grates my nerves. <laughs> you know, like like Dave Evans singing. I mean, you know what? He has every right to sing Highway to Hell because anybody can sing whatever song they want to sing They can as a cover. Okay, I get that. Pick a different band to do a cover of because that that's the one weird thing about it. It's like you're living off of ACDC's legacy off the fact that you play, you sang on one song, maybe two, before the band became famous. Before the band even signed and made a record deal. You you well, they had a record deal. He just he sang those two songs as a single. And then they brought in Bon Scott. So he's not even part of the famous part of the band at all. And then all these years later he's gonna live off of playing all the songs that they played at the time, which was essentially the first album. And then, oh, I'm going to go into do an encore. I'm going to go ahead and sing a cover of that same band. I don't know. I, I just, he he really irritates the <laughs> shit out of me when it comes to that stuff. So, <laughs> um, we could talk more about Dave another time. Tigers, um, I said, the last two albums are really cool. I think those are, they've, they've, they've kind of found their niche now. So Yes, sir. All right, we move on. Enough bitching about Dave Evans and all those other people. <laughs> all right, so we're going to move on to Diamond Head. Um, so Diamond Head, we, we kind of talked about last time. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a hit or miss thing with them. Their first album is absolutely amazing. I think a lot of people see that as a, a starting point to, you know, what would come with, with bands like Metallica, Megadeth, um, and beyond, really. Like, a lot of those guys were really, truly influenced by Diamond Head. Um, they tried to reform in 1993. Uh, Sean Harris and Brian Tatler got back together, and they brought on Dave Mustaine to produce a, a, one song, I believe. Uh, Tony Iommi guest guitar, uh, or played guest guitar on one song. Um, and then, you know, it's not a bad attempt. It's just for me it doesn't it doesn't really like do it you know and it they didn't quite recapture anything from before it's it's all right it's better than the last album canterbury by far um but it's just you know it was an attempt it didn't quite work out they they weren't happy with the project after that ended up breaking up in 1994 then they'd reform in 2000 uh this time it was really Brian Tatler's project, you know, he wrote most of the music, so that makes sense. Uh, has Nick Tart on vocals, Eddie Muhan on bass. He he kind of played a couple tracks on the previous album, and Adrian Mills on rhythm guitar. Um, you know, it's it's not bad. All will be revealed. It it it's getting a little bit more momentum, I would say, by that point. Um, Nick Tart stays on vocals through the next album, uh, "What's in Your Head." And then Diamond Head in 2016. Um, so that, to me, is where the band kind of found their sound again, 
Rasmus Bond Anderson uh, replaces Nick Tart on vocals. I really like his voice. He's got a great voice. Uh, they released Coffin Train in 2019 and Lightning to the Nations 2020. Um, so it's a re, uh, re-recording entirely of Lightning to the Nations with this new singer. And to me, it sounds great. It's more mature. Um, some of the solos, I think, sound even better. Obviously, recording quality is better. And Rasmus's voice is fantastic. Um, so... It's not, you know, the the original still has its place in history, and it's not replacing that to me. I think it's just kind of showing, like, hey, you know, we're we're around all this time later. Um, this is what we can do now with this band. And yes, it's a cash grab to some degree. I get it, a hundred percent get it. But it's it. The difference is, it still has to be good, and it is good. So to me, Diamond Head. They didn't really do anything, you know, that that's too substantial. I think these last three albums, including the the re-recording of Lightning to the Nation, have been really good. Um, everything in between, you know, it's it's worth checking out just because if you love that first Diamond Head album, it's nice to see, you know, their path, where they came along. But, you know, really it's that first album and these last three that are going to be what you want to check out. Everything in between is kind of like, you know, give it a try, see what you like. But, but uh, Diamond Head to me has has found a sound, has found something that kind of takes them back from being just one of these middling bands to something that maybe never will find that ground, but is more substantial and as metalheads we can really enjoy. So, as you're talking about Diamond Head, and uh, a, a stream of consciousness came into my mind. I was thinking about one thing leading to another, leading to another. And there's so many different thoughts came into my mind about Diamond Head in general. So let me let me touch upon each one. Uh, the first thought I had was if if Sean Harris and Brian Taylor had retired after after making Lightning to the Nations or their first album, um, it would probably they probably would have been better off. Being that they wouldn't have tarnished the Diamond Head legacy with albums like Canterbury and Death in Progress. Um, and I say tarnished because they're really not very good albums. I mean, Death in Progress has its highlights, but in, in essence, it's it's not a very good Diamond Head album. Um, the first album, Lightning to the Nations, which technically for, for Sean and, and, and Brian were or was a demo, okay, um, it, it, it is better. It obviously, that is what is their legacy. All right. So that's the first stream of consciousness. They would have been better off. But okay, so they didn't do it. So they recorded another album. They recorded another album. They recorded another album. And it's like, all right, you've never touched even remotely close to what you did, that magic that you found the first time. Okay, I get it. You want to be a band. This is what you are. But you're you're catering to everybody around you as opposed to catering to yourself. That's another stream of consciousness or thought. Then finally, when you talk, when you touched upon Lightning to the Nations 2020, um, what what and, and I like that album a lot because it does bring that album into a modern recording. It's a it's a new version of songs that should have been technically re-recorded on their first album. They only did two. Um, 
and the vocalist, you know, he's got a deeper register, so it kind of makes those songs a little bit thicker in that regards, uh, and it's, so it sounds really good. I there there's the one thing that not a lot of us fans know, you know, and I know a little bit about it. You know, we've touched upon it on the episodes the, is uh, or episodes in the past is the music business itself, right? There's a reason why all these bands that have re-recorded full albums of early music, there's a reason why that happens. Every single band has a different reason per se, but they're all kind of related. Def Leppard, they had their battle with iTunes or streaming in general. And that's the reason why they re-recorded, but yet have yet to release it fully. Re-recorded all their greatest hits trying to mimic exactly what they did in the studio back in the day. They came really close, but for some reason, the energy wasn't there. Okay. Twisted Sister, we recorded still uh, Stay Hungry, and they should have, you know, they're, they're fat and full. They didn't really care. They didn't, it didn't have the, the same angst. Um, Kiss re-recorded some of their best hits for their, uh, for a re-release so KISS had their reasons because they did not want to give money, literally, they did not want to give performance money to Peter and Ace. So they re-recorded with Eric Singer and uh, Tommy Thayer. So their performance and sync rights that go to radios, uh, radio stations or that they get from radio stations and stuff like that changed and so that they, they're not giving certain money out to certain people. So they have a, an ulterior motive. Same thing with Ozzy trying to re-record the, fir- the, the first album. But... Um, like you know, so so every band has its reasons for doing what they do when it comes to re-recording. You know, Exodus redoing "Bonded by Blood," uh, different reasons. Mm-hmm. So, Lightning to Nations, to me, you know, they have their reasons. Now they're getting legitimately paid on whatever it is that they get from this album. Um, you know, back back then it was a demo, it was released, but you know it sold a few thousand and it kind of went bootleg from there. You know, and then they re, re, re reissued it years later. It did not have the same effect, you know, as it, it was as it did originally. So it was, they probably didn't make a lot of money on it. But it wasn't until Metallica made them famous again that they actually had a career, had a life, and stuff like that. So that was all. Those things are going through my mind. While, while you're talking about the band and I like the band for who they are now and I like the band for who they were back in 1980 81 but the, the band in between they they lost their way so much and then they finally kind of put it together later in the in the late 2010s or in the, the 2010s that you know I don't know I could I could Take them or leave them, I guess, in that in that regards. So I know that was a long explanation of, of their albums, but that's that was the stream of consciousness I had while you know you, you were you were talking about that. Uh, so. I get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you reiterated a couple points that I, I had already said, but that that's Yeah, no, I mean it's just it's one of those things because you're you're talking about it and I'm trying to listen as hard as I can. And at the same time, there's so many different thoughts that are just popping up back and forth with that, you know. But because, you know, there's 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 songwriters out there who have written a song or two, made it big, 
from the person who covered the song or the person who recorded their their song that they that was you know like like certain singers like if, if a guy was it the guy who's who people who record hit me or excuse me the people who wrote hit me with your best shot that pet benatar ended up singing <laughs> i don't think they actually recorded as a band they were just songwriters and she found the song and recorded it i mean that happens a um, lot right that happens a lot so you know she made them very rich she became rich on that as well because she gets performance rights and she gets album sales. But as songwriters, they became very rich. And basically, I think they wrote one or two songs after that, but never really did anything. And they retired off of the fact that Pet Benatar made them There's famous. The dream. Exactly. You know, do you write one song and have someone else record it, and then you never have to worry about anything. So that's really cool. Um, that that is basically Harris and Tatler. You know, Metallica made them famous. Megadeth made them famous. Although Megadeth didn't really do much in terms of recording, Metallica was the one who recorded and made them famous. Well, yeah, I mean, the, that early sound of Metallica, they wouldn't be famous without Diamond Head either. You know, like, right, like let's right. be let's be reali- realistic. It's a symbiotic relationship in a lot of way because Metallica passed off diamond head songs as their own songs for a while so it's it's you know it's give and take and it's worked out i think well for both of them the difference is metallica had had that talent to kind of continue on and and continue writing great music all these years so um uh, you know it's not really taken a whole lot away from diamond head i'm glad they're putting out better music now but they're you're 100 right you the songs have to be there and in the in the middle period of their career they just weren't um but but definitely check out those last three albums and if you've never heard the first album um you're missing out check that one out as well okay so we've gone through all the moderate successes and and of the bands that made their way through the new wave of British heavy metal, made their way through the end of the, the actual uh, uh, scene. And, you know, and have, have the, 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 not, I don't want to say re-imaging, but the, the, the reinvigoration of the scene that happened in the 2000s, a lot of these bands, you know, uh, came back with vengeance, basically, and said, "Hey, you know, it's I, I want to make money off of this too somehow. You know, I want this whole resurgence of the scene. Uh, I want to be part of it. So this is where we're at now. But there, there are a couple bands that we're going to talk about now who have basically maintained the, their fame throughout this period. Um, some one more famous than the other, but the next band we're going to talk about is Zaxxon, uh, and they really." have not stopped this entire time, which is really cool. I, I, I really, really think that is one of the cool things. Very similar to Girl School. They never quit. They never gave up. They continued moving forward. Uh, and in Zaxxon's case, very forward. They have grown with the times as they have changed. Still keeping their foot in the original new wave of British heavy metal to some degree. I mean, there's a shoe in there. A lot has changed. But there's still there's still a grounded effect that 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 roots them all the way back to this. Um, they, you know, saying that they that they've maintained a steady workflow is ridiculous when you think about all the albums that they have released over time. I mean, in the '80s, you're talking about 
they they started with you know from the point that we're talking about the mid 80s you know rock the nations destiny solid ball of rock forever free dogs of war unleash the beast metalhead killing ground lionheart inner sanctum into the labyrinth call to arms sacrifice battering ram thunderbolt inspirations and now most recently carpe diem i mean that's nuts to think about all those albums through that entire time period yeah. but they did it you know and yes they've had uh, they've had lineup changes, but they've had two Pretty guys minimal, that have been in the honestly. band. Relatively minimal. Um, you know, the drummer changed twice, but it was the same person back and forth. Um, so it's essentially three people or two, you know, definitely two people from the beginning. And Nigel Walker only left for one album and then came back. And that's that's one right. thing to keep in mind, too. Um, you know. <sighs> but Nigel left a couple times and came back. Uh, yes, he did. he was replaced by um, Nigel. another Nigel, <laughs> and I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, and then it was replaced by George Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but that's where he was all that time. <laughs> He's playing for Zach George Michael, but yes. Um, so ever since 2017, though, they've had a consistent lineup, which I think is really cool too. Um, but yeah. Solid albums, and we talked about them before, like just heavier and heavier. That's the other thing. So I, I've really enjoyed Saxon's latter career. Uh, their early stuff is, is awesome. The 80s stuff was really good. Um, but for me, as like a guy who likes heavier metal, um, man, the, the, the stuff ever since has just been awesome. So Yeah, I mean, there's... Put it this way, I mean, the fact that Amon Amarth came to Biff and said, "Hey, we'd like you, you know, to be on this song, you know, Vikings and Saxons," is pretty cool, um, you know. And he did, you know, to 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 listen to someone singing death vocals, and then you have Biff doing his regular Saxon vocals is really cool, you know, dichotomy in that song, um, which can be found on the latest Amon Amarth song uh, album. Excuse me. So. I want to point out a few things on a couple albums. Um, in 1995, they released an album called Dogs of War. And um, I don't know what happened during the recording of that, but someone, I don't know if they did it like overnight sneaking and no one figured it out, but someone just dropped all the bass frequencies. And there's absolutely zero bass frequencies on that album. I don't know what the hell happened. It's worse than a demo in that regards. But it's it's very interesting that there is almost no bass for you. You can hear the bass guitar. Metallica you can snuck the, into the studio. And- no, man, it's even worse than that. <laughs> I know, it's even I worse know. than that. You know, it's just like because there's bass drum on 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 Injustice for All. There's there's you can hear bass lines throughout. It, the problem is is that this one they removed the frequencies. So like if you're listening to the bass line, it just sounds like the pick. If you're listening to the drums, just imagine taking, you know, your eraser and tapping it on a desk, you know, eraser on a pencil, tapping on that is the way the drums sound. And the snares is a little bit higher just because that's the way snares sound. It is so weird of a, of a recording. Yeah, it's not, it's um, not they, good, to be honest. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. But there's, a, there's um, some next other album. really interesting stuff that's going on at this time. And that's that Graham Oliver does not appear on the album. And there's a reason why that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Um, but this is, this is essentially, um, it, it's, it's like a, a, 
album of upheaval, I would say. Yes. Yeah, it was there was a lot time for change, you put it that way. Um next album, Unleashed a Beast, they kind of got back to sounding a little bit more normal in the in terms of recording sound. But Again, one thing that we wanted to reiterate about this is that the songs themselves are still pretty decent. They're pretty mm-hmm. good, um, and and like I said, you like you just mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, Graham Oliver in a second. Um, the one thing I really like, last year, twenty twenty one, they released a, a covers album called Inspirations, and I got to tell you, I, I was you know. When you start thinking about an old band wanting to re-release or record songs that inspired them, you start thinking, "Oh shit!" You know they're gonna start, you know, recording '60s tracks that you, that no one really cares about. I got I got to hand it to them. They they released a pretty good covers album. It's very diverse in in the artists that they chose. Um, I mean, there's, uh, you know. They picked a song from Motorhead. They picked a song from ACDC. They picked a song from The Beatles. They picked a song from uh, Jimi Hendrix. But the one that really stands out to me was they picked a, a song from Toto, Hold the Line. That That's probably Toto's third biggest song that they've ever released. And I say third because obviously we all know about Rosanna and Africa. Um, but hold the line really stands out to me. Like when I think of Toto, that's the song I think of, honestly. So it may be different for everybody. Well, and I, I say that real because you know Rosanna and and Africa was so huge, oh, yeah. you know. And then but hold the line is such a you know like you don't really think of Toto in because to me it's a, it's like a semi heavy song. You know, it was killer riff on that song, um, you know, and it's so catchy. But it was very interesting that that they recorded that. Um, and then the other thing that they recorded was a song called Evil Woman. Now, up until t- today, I was this years old or today years old is, is the, the, the modern term for it. When I discovered that that's not actually a Black Sabbath song. <laughs> I was like, what? What do you mean? It's a song that was recorded in 1969 by a band named Crow. Released as a single. It was actually a top 100 hit. I think it reached number 69 or 68 or something like that in the the top 100 charts, Billboard 100. And Black Sabbath picked up on it, recorded the song the same year, released it the following year, I guess in January of 1970, as their first single off of the album Black Sabbath. Now... If anyone here listening in the United States has the first Black Sabbath album, they're not going to find that song on it because it was not released in the United States, not until 2002. Um, If you were in Europe and you have a European import version of Black Sabbath, you'll have the song on there, um, which is amazing. I I had no idea that that was not a Black Sabbath song um, until today. I actually recording this episode. (laughs) You know, and and I when I heard the Inspirations version last week, I'm like, oh, this is a cool, you know, I like this version that they did, you know, and I love the the Black Sabbath version, uh, but I was blown away by the fact that it's not a Black Sabbath song, you know, it's got a killer bass line on it, and it's it's I was surprised, it was an American band named Crow, so um, that's interesting, but getting back to Zaxxon, um. In 
as you re- referenced in 1995, there was a little bit of upheaval. And why don't you go ahead and take it from here as to what we're talking about? Uh, so basically, Graham Oliver and Steve Dawson formed their own side band called Son of a Bitch, um, which was originally Saxon's name before they they recorded music. So uh, they had changed their name over to be more marketable. Makes sense. Um, it was for, <laughs> former members of Saxon in the band. Graham Oliver, Steve Dawson, Pete Gill, and then Nigel Durham, who had briefly re- replaced Nigel Glocker, would later be in the band on drums. So um, they released Victim You in 1996. Um, you know, it's it's got its merits. Um, but they've kind of been inconsistent from there. They've, they released a, um, uh, regarding landed, um, it's a hard way to say that. Uh, so basically the R E colon landed, um, live album in 2000, then rock has landed. It's alive in uh, 2002. That's a DVD. So it's not like really new music or anything like that. Um, they did a, an interesting one that I wanted to bring up. So uh, it's called The Second Wave, 25 Years of New Wave of British Heavy Metal. That was a, a album that they did with Girl School and Tigers of Pantang in 2003. So basically each member or each uh, band had five songs on that record. Um, it's interesting. It's it's worth checking out, but this is 2003 Tigers of Pantang as well. So I believe that's Tony Liddell on vocals. Um, girl school is girl school, so they're always going to sound that way. And I just think it's really odd that they uh, they went with this version of Saxon. So Oliver Dawson Saxon. Um, it's it's alive. Another live album in 2003, and then finally they released another actual album called Motorbiker in. T- 2012 then another live album in 2014 so to me this is this is more of a living off of your legacy kind of band hmm so i have a beef with graham oliver and steve dawson or oliver dawson zaxon i have i have a huge beef with this but first um they sound like zaxon go figure okay um, you're talking about basically an alternative version of Zaxxon with a different singer. Um, it, it, it worked for them. They, the singer that they chose for, for Son of a Bitch was a guy named Ted Bullet, And for the most part, he sounds like a cross between Biff Byford and Udo Dirk Schneider. Okay, so so you you you, comp- you combine Biff and Udo, and that's the sound you get with this guy Ted Bullet. Doesn't sound bad. It sounds like Zaxxon. Okay, so that's the the good part about it, I guess you could say. Um, the the part I have issues with is that you've got former members thinking that thinking that they can use the name Zaxxon of an established band. Now, yes, they were part of that established band, but you have you you left. You were replaced. Okay, and then they think they could use a name to form an alternative band, and not not alternative style, but a different band. Okay, <laughs> they're playing and up there like uh, Nirvana and shit. <laughs> so, so they, you know, they think they can make this alternate band um, and and find success. 
they found some success. They found touring success, to, if you want to look at it that way. And success is relative to what you want to claim. Okay, in this particular case, they tried to steal the name outright. Okay, you know, they went to court and because Zaxxon had been established and, and even though no one actually owned the name and these uh, Oliver and Dawson tried to basically register the name because Zaxxon was, had the, the pre-existing history um, and they they basically in the end accused um, Oliver and Dawson of trying to take the name um, uh under false, pre not false pretenses, but, you know, with it, with ill will. So the, the Zaxxon name was, was given to Biff. He has it now. So they had to come up with Oliver Dawson Zaxxon. Okay. They have recorded some original music, obviously with Son of a Bitch. And then uh, later on with uh, Oliver Dawson Zaxxon, the bulk of their live show is based on early era Zaxxon. Okay. So my beef with that is you have created a band. Now you have two different Zaxons out there, okay? One with the original singer, Biff Byford, who basically has formed his legacy and has continued to do it each and every year since 1979, 78, whatever time, whatever year it was that they formed, okay, 77. Um, and then you got two disgruntled people. And I say two because, yes, they, they had other members from Zaxon, but they may or may not have been disgruntled. They may have just been, hey, uh, we're making a band. You want to join? You know, we're doing Zaxxon. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. You know, and and then you you try to basically pawn yourself off as the the real band. I, I don't like that. I just, I think that's shitty. Dude, you had your career. You decided to quit for one reason or another. You, you didn't get along with Biff anymore. You didn't like the direction that they were going in. Maybe they were getting a little too heavy. You wanted to stay in new album. Who knows? You have your name, your personal name that people know you by. Come up with something original. Okay? Yeah, you could go out there and you can still play Zaxxon songs. But are you? do you really think that you're going to have tremendous amount of success or, or create a new career under this old thing and, and be that much more successful? Have, get your own identity. You know, it's just like, come on, seriously. Get your own identity. I mean, the, you know, he, they're not the first ones to do this. I mean, no, we, they're not. Referenced... And I have a beef with all those other fucking people too. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like get your own fucking identity. You know what? You know who I, I, I admire for that. You know who I admire for that? Danzig. Mm -hmm. Danzig. Glenn Danzig could easily, easily have lived off of the Misfits, right? But what did he do? Okay, you got Glenn Danzig, who basically you know, leaves the misfits and comes up with Sam Hain. Okay. And then that falls apart and he takes, I believe he takes Chuck biscuits with him. I think Chuck biscuits was in Sam Hain at the end there and they make Danzig and he creates his own identity. He creates his own brand, his own business. And at some times, sometime he, 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 he may or may not have played a misfit song here and there. I don't know. I saw them a couple times in concert. It was mostly Danzig. But the bottom line is, is he went and created his own legacy. Okay. He did not live off of the misfits, you know, and that that's admirable. You know, who else? I mean, for the most part, Ace Freely is Ace Freely. And he went and made Freely's Comet. And yes, in concert, he played Kiss songs. Everyone knew who Ace was. Yeah, but he okay. didn't just live off of that. I mean, like Rob Halford, right? Rob Halford, when he did his Halford. Rob Halford. He did fight. He did fight. He did Halford. But he also played some Judas Priest stuff, but that's 
I mean, those were his songs. You right. know, but it but wasn't him, only he, that. Right, exactly. But he had Halford. He had two albums. He had Fight. He had two albums. And uh, and not only he had two and one album. <laughs> you well, know? Well, yeah, that's... that's <laughs> but that, that never got played live. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is that he, through Fight, through Halford, he played Judas Priest songs. But he never purported himself to be you know, Judas Rob Priest. Halford's priest. He didn't do KK's priest. Okay. He, he just, KK is basically trying to do that so that he, people can remember. You know, I think people know who KK Downing is. Okay. I'm sorry. I think people know, you know, and it's, it's who else, who else is out there? Uh, <laughs> uh, Tom Kiefer, Tom Kiefer. He doesn't go, I'm Tom Kiefer Cinderella. No. He just plays as Tom Kiefer. His entire set, except for like one or two songs, is is Cinderella. But you wouldn't know that it's Cinderella, but you know it's Tom Kiefer, right? So, you know, he went out. He went out. Yes, he's the vocalist, just like Rob. He's the vocalist, but he didn't necessarily purport himself to be the ex-singer of Cinderella, the ex-singer of Priest, the ex-singer of the Misfits. Okay, they went ahead and forged their own legacy. Ace Freely, even him, Freely's Comet, went out and forged his own legacy with that band. Released first album actually was technically an Ace Freely solo album called Freely's Comet. Then the second album was called Second Sighting. The band was named Freely's Comet. Okay, he went out and did his own thing while also still playing Kiss songs at the end of the show because that's what people wanted to hear. Okay. I give all those people credit, but Graham Oliver and Steve Dawson and Oliver Dawson Jackson, screw you. Okay. Figure out your own freaking legacy. <laughs> I guess that rant is over. <laughs> all, all right. I mean, do you agree with me or disagree with me? I, I don't know all the circumstances behind their split. So I would like to know a little bit more about that. Why they split so so that's like, angrily? That's like Dave, yeah, that's like Dave Mustaine. You know, he was he's pissed off still to this day. But he doesn't he call himself, you know, Dave's Metallica. You know? Exactly. He made his own legacy. He forged his own career. I now, get that. I agree. What is he, what is heavier than Metallica? What is he, Megadeth? Megadeth. Okay, <laughs> so but that, it is. It's heavier uh, than yeah, yeah, no, yes, but that was his intent. That yeah. was it. I'm going to do something heavier, faster, you know, than Metallica. I'm going to name it Megadeth, you know, and that is what he did. He achieved it, and you know what? Kudos to him. Exactly. You know. No, I and I I understand where you're coming from. I'm just I'm a little curious, and maybe we'll do an episode about. Saxon in the in the future where we talk more about it I don't know or just mention it in the future but I'd like to do a little bit more research about what happened in 1993 1994 that made them split so I mean we, we all know yes we all know what happened to Steve Riley from LA Guns he got fired mm-hmm. the only way that that Tracy Guns the actual guy who started LA Guns was going to come back to his own band it was if Steve was gone okay true and Phil Lewis, who's the original singer for L.A. Guns, came back because he was to, he was with Steve Riley all that time. But you know he reunited with Tracy and they dumped Steve. Yeah. And Steve's you know all butt hurt. He goes away and uh, I'm gonna make my own band. Well, no, he, that's not true. Let's put it this way: he got offered 
so he says, he got offered to do some festivals in Europe, okay, as L.A. Guns. And he tried to purport himself off as being L.A. Guns. I'm sorry. Singer, bassist, guitar, guitar, nobody from, from L.A. Guns. Then all of a sudden you get the L.A. Guns drummer. I'm sorry. You did not create the L.A. Guns sound with your special drumming. Okay. So... <laughs> That kind of shit pisses me off because that is bullshit. You know what? Come up with your own band and, you know, look, I'll give it to him. Adler's Appetite, Stephen Adler. It's a play on words. At least he didn't go out and say, I'm going to be Stephen Adler, you know, Stephen Adler's Guns N' Roses because Axel would have shoved him into the ground at that point. But, you know, so he comes up with Adler's Appetite and <laughs> basically gu- plays Guns and Adler's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... But everyone knows that Stephen Adler was a drummer for, for Guns N' Roses. We all know his history with drugs and, and all the problems that he's had and, this, and, and the, the stroke that he had and all that stuff. But you know what? He, he needs something to, to hang on to. I give him that credit because he's done some original music as Adler's Appetite, mostly living off of the, Adler, uh, the Appetite for Destruction legacy from Guns N' Roses. But you know what? It's a play on words. If <clears throat> very similar to... Oliver Dawson Zaxon playing on words with their albums, uh, you know, Rock Has Landed. You know, it's supposed to be a takeoff of, you know, The Eagle Has Landed. You know, yeah. I get that. I, I'll give him that much, you know. But um, even Steven is, is pushing the boundaries of that, that living off your legacy. But he's not trying to purport himself off as a version of Guns N' Roses. He is trying to celebrate the fact that he was in Guns N' Roses. It's a big difference. And yeah, they've been very kind to him over the years, which I don't, I, I appreciate, you know, cause the guy's had his, his problems and you know, it's when you're, when you're that addicted, et cetera, then it's, it's a blessing that he's even alive today. And I think even the other members of the band view it that way, but it, they don't want to play with him. You know, and I get that too. Yeah, um, I get it. But that's a that's a story for another day. Yeah, and then uh, lastly, to touch upon you know one of these guys living off of legacies that's not really doing too much in terms of living off a of legacy, um, King Diamond. Okay, he left Merciful Fate, and he said, you know what? I'm going to make my own path. I'm going to make my own band. I'm going to call it King Diamond after me. Right, and yeah. he did, and he's had a very successful career for himself, and he actually went back to Merciful Fate. They're playing now; they're touring the United States now. Okay, <clears throat> and that you know that's again noble. Make that your was, own. That career. was his band from the beginning, though, too. But he could have easily have left and said, oh, "I'm going to go ahead and make my own Merciful Fate because he's the the most unique singer out there." No, I I agree. I'm just saying, like, so he has a little bit more rights in there too. He could have, but he didn't. He did his own thing. I mean, all these bands, if you think about people who have left the bands, I mean, Jason Newstead could have easily gone and said, I'm going to go ahead and make Jason Newstead's Metallica. Bullshit. <laughs> you know, who are you going to kid? You know, you can go around playing, you know, you can call yourself Chop House and play Metallica songs. That's great. Do that. You know, but. You I know. think he should have called himself Unjustice for Jason. <laughs> yeah exactly alright we have one more band left to discuss and um, we kind of all know who that's probably going to be but um, we're going to both talk about it because it's that kind of band why don't you go ahead and start it off 
Uh, so let's talk about Iron Maiden. Um, so let's. I'll, I'll kind of take things up into the 2000s, like the er, before the 2000s, I guess, and then you can take it from there. Um, but uh, so Iron Maiden, obviously been around since 1975. Uh, we talked about up into uh, somewhere in time last time. So starting off with Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, um, you've got basically the classic lineup of the band, Bruce Dickinson, Dave Murray, Adrian Smith, Steve Harris, and Nico McBrain. Um, this was the last album with that lineup, however. Uh, but it's a great album. I, I'm an absolute fan. Um, this, to me, is the last uh, a great of, of the early, of like, I guess, the of the Bruce era. That's the best way to put it, right? Um because I'm I'm a fan of No Prayer for the Dying. I'm a fan of of Fear of the Dark. But Seventh Son of a Seventh Son was the last one that was just kind of flawless from beginning to end for me. Um, no Prayer for the Dying comes out in 1990. You've got Yannick Gerge replacing Adrian Smith on guitars. Um, Adrian just kind of wanted to move on to a new thing. You've still got some of his writing on the album, um, but I get it. You know, it it's. It was time to move on at that time. Uh, Fear of the Dark comes out in 1992. Another pretty great album. Um, but the band is dissolving. And the tour that that follow, or that that uh, accompanies the album is, let's say, not great. It's still good, and the fans still view it positively. Um, but from the band perspective, it's not great. Because you have... After this point, you have um, Adrian, uh, sorry, you have Steve Harris saying, "Well, Bruce wasn't really in it, you know. He he was he was going through the motions, this and that." And I think that's debatable because you can listen to the shows, you can still find them, and he still sounds great. So from their perspective, you know, they've got inner band turmoil, etc. They can view it how they view it, but from a fan perspective, it might be a little different. Well, then 1995 rolls around. In between this time, Bruce has left the band, and they've replaced him with a singer called, or singer called, let's go British, a singer called Blaze Bailey. Um, so Blaze, very different sound. You know, he's he's the guy that they felt was the right fit for the band, but he had some vocal issues trying to do Bruce Dickinson's vocals. Who wouldn't, you know? Who's going to match Bruce? It's going to be hard to find somebody. Um, and it definitely was in 1995. The X Factor, Virtual 11, they've got some good songs on them here and there. There's a couple that uh, we've both come to like. Um, so you have The Klansman and Sign of the Cross. Those are songs that e they even played recently on the show that we went to see. So um, there's some good stuff on there. Future Real, I think, is a, a really good track as well. And Bruce re-recorded that later. Um, but, you know, this was a tough period. They went from being an, an arena act, you know, massive band, down to playing club shows. And that's happened to a lot of bands uh, since in the metal scene because metal is not as prominent as it used to be. Um, but for a band as big as Iron Maiden was and the band as big as Iron Maiden is now it's it was a tough time period but then 2000 rolls around and Bruce returns to the band 
I was at one of those club shows, by the way. I went to see Iron Maiden with Blaze Bailey uh, on the, I want to say it was the X Factor tour, but I can't be certain. But yeah, that seeing Iron Maiden in a small club is a very different experience. As cool as it was, you expect Iron Maiden to have that big, grandiose stage show. This was literally just them with a, like a small Eddie backdrop and, a, and Eddie comes out. They didn't have the whole Eddie at the end with the backdrop, you know, sticking out, you know, all air, air Eddie, you know, whatever he is, like an air balloon is very, very strange to see him like that, but it was cool at the same time. Um, in 1999, Bruce Dickinson returned to the band in 2000. They, uh, recorded their reunion era album, if you want to call it that. Um, Bruce Dickinson returned, as well as Adrian Smith returning. They recorded Brave New World. Amazing, amazing album. Um, we all know that. So the, the reunion era began in 1999, and it's kind of weird because they put out a hidden track on the Ed Hunter uh, Greatest Hits CD and, and CD-ROM game. Um, the hidden track is... Uh, a Wrathchild with Bruce Dickinson on vocals. And the way they did it was they literally just said, here, redo the vocals. They took the original track from all the way back in 1981 and they kind of remastered it or remixed it. And then they put uh, Bruce's vocals on it. That was the first thing to, to, to basically start up the reunion era of Iron Maiden. Um, in 2000, they released Brave New World 2003, Dance of Death. 2006, A Matter of Life and Death. 2010, Final Frontiers. 2015, Book of Souls. And just recently, last year, they released Senjutsu. Um, this era of Iron Maiden is nothing but sensational. It's amazing. The albums have been long, and longer and longer and longer with each release. Um, but the, the songs are just amazing i have taken the time to go back and listen to some of these songs and some of these albums that i necessarily like and i have been able to pick out one or two things here from each album and and actually appreciate it um some songs that people like i still can't get into uh that would be the reincarnation of benjamin breek um <laughs> but <laughs> in most cases um, the albums are great. I mean, Senjutsu's great. The Book of Souls is great. Uh, Final Frontier is better than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, I think, personally, Matter of Life and Death, people give too much credit to, but that's just my opinion. Uh, I know I will probably be slapped left and right when people hear that. Um, but Brave New World is great. Dance of Death is great. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's anything but... Uh, well, excuse me. You can't say anything really bad about what Iron Maiden has done since the, the reunion era, and, and I call it that because it's now a six-piece band, three guitarists, and and you know the bassist and drummer and singer. Um, it is such a different dynamic now, you know. But at the same time, it's so cool to see this on stage, and I like what they 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 have done as a business arrangement, if you want to put it that way. Whereas because they, they take so much time in between albums, what they do now is that they will release an album, tour on that album, 
Um, and they will do a tour, which is basically more of the modern Iron Maiden stuff or reunion era recordings with a, f- a little hint here and there of the classic Iron Maiden. So you'll get a tour with mostly songs from the reunion era with maybe a Wrathchild, uh, uh, the Iron Maiden song, uh, the self-titled song, and then like maybe one or two other songs. But the but the set list is a majority of the modern era songs. And then they've done the in-between tour. They do what they call the, the, and they don't call it a nostalgia tour, but they call it the classics kind of tour. And they've recreated the Power Slave tour, the Seventh Son tour. Um, and then just recently, this last one uh, was, you know, the Legacy of the Beast tour, extremely successful, basically celebrated every era. And I really think that that really, really came across very well. You and I went to see the show. It's amazing. They are still, still touring on uh, Legacy of the Beast only because they had these tour dates already planned out. Although this current United States tour that they have, I I don't think it should have been uh, a part of the Legacy of the Beast, but they're, they, they, were, they were so popular, that tour, that they've they're now playing places that they didn't play last time to fill in some of the gaps and then at the end of this year i think it finishes this year 2022 2023 they're going to come out and they're going to tour on senjutsu finally Mm -hmm. although they are playing a couple of tracks from senjutsu now uh you know so the legacy to beast whoever's catching the united states version of legacy to beast and whoever caught a couple of the shows from the festivals over 2022 were catching the senjutsu songs that have been added to the set list um, and some of the, like the drum, the drums have changed. So there's pictures now with Sinjutsu and stuff like that. Um, but still for the most part, the legacy, the beast. So, I mean, what else is there to say about Iron Maiden? They have literally, I would want to say, you know, with the reunion era, they reinvented themselves. They're more progressive, longer, longer songs. Um, but at the same time, it's such, there's still classic Iron Maiden, you know? So it's it is just incredible to watch and see how far they've come from the new wave of British heavy metal to now, you know? And, and yeah, they had that little lull in the 90s, like everybody else did. Um, but it was, it, they, they persevered and they got through it. And here they are today, probably bigger than ever. I'd, I'd say, I mean, at, at least as big, because it just, it also depends on what part of the world you, that you go to, um, because the U.S. obviously is is not as strong in the metal fandom anymore, I guess, um, but you go other places in the world, and they're just as big as they ever were, and, and that's more than just Iron Maiden we're referring to. I mean, that just metal in general you go to europe and vakken festival is just still massive you know and that's great to great to see i'd love to go see uh, vakken at some point um i i would love to but i, I at the same time i think to myself i'm getting too old for this shit <laughs> <laughs> because you literally go there you got to camp oh I mean, yeah otherwise you're staying you know miles away and I don't know if I'm I'm up for that, you know, <laughs> but it would it would be an amazing amazing experience if I ever went to Vakin. Yes. Uh but yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- some of these bands like we said disappeared 
and then came back. Um, but a few of them survived this whole time. Girl School, uh, Zaxxon, Iron Maiden, to varying degrees. Um, but the fact is they're still putting out music, and there's a lot of stuff that, even if it's a band that you didn't like one incarnation of or something like that, there's still stuff to find. There's always new music to explore, and I'm just glad that these guys are around doing their thing. So, so um, to, to kind of bring this all to a nice little bow tie, the funny thing is uh, about my rants that I just had today, um, <clears throat> Chris and I, uh, at, the, at, at the time that we're recording this, last night, we went to see Accept in concert, okay? Now, everyone's going to sit there and say, wait a second. Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, you're a hypocrite <laughs> because we went to see Accept and Accept only has one original member, Wolf Hoffman, or one of one member from the classic lineup of Accept, Wolf Hoffman. I get it. I understand that. I'm, I'm not saying that Wolf should have done something different. Here's the thing. At the time that Accept reunited in 2009 after being apart for so long, um, they had uh, um, Herman Frank, who had played on Balls to the Wall, and they had Peter Baltus, the original, or the, the basically, yeah, the original bass player for Accept. So there were two people from the original band, and then there was um, Herman Frank, someone who played on a classic lineup of Accept. And they brought in a new singer because obviously Wolf and, and Udo could not get along. They, it, it wasn't going to happen with Udo. Um, so they brought in Mark Tornillo, who is an extremely talented vocalist who sounds so much like Udo. And then, of course, they brought in uh, a different drummer. He does, but he also has a very unique voice of his own, which I appreciate. Like he sounds like, or he doesn't sound like Udo per se, but he has similar tone, I would say. I, Right. So, regardless, um, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that, that that Wolf should have done something different. But at the time, you know, he owned the name, and you know, he 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 was the main songwriter. It's those songs are his. Uh, he wasn't the lyricist, but the song, the music, in, was his. So I give him that much credit because bottom line is the band was not going to continue if they weren't called Accept, and the band wasn't going to continue with Udo. So they forged their name. They, they've established themselves as except with Mark on vocals, with Wolf on guitar. So this new era that started in 2009 of except is what we, is currently out there. Okay. So yes, the band now is Mark and Wolf, and they've had different, different musicians since that point they've and now they're a six-piece band just like iron maiden with three guitar players um so now that they're, they're they're two two sixths um or you want to put one third uh american you know the the guitar player uh, uh was his name shouse i can't remember his first name now um he is american from alabama mark is an american from new york and then you've got the rest of the guys from from germany so my point being is I've ranted a lot about these bands that got a million different members coming in and out of the band. And Accept has been part of that as well. But um, in essence, 
the whole bow tie is this. We've we've spoken about the successes, the non-successes, and the people, the, the, the has-beens or should-have-beens or never made it anywhere. All the music during this time period, the new wave of British heavy metal, was pretty, pretty damn good, pretty amazing. And it is a period of time that you look back with some nostalgia, and you look back with some pride, you look back with a gleam in your eye, and then in 2000, the resurgence said, you know what, I can still listen to this, I still can go see this. And that's the cool thing. You know what, for for what it's worth out there, a lot of these bands that are still trying to make it, or still trying to put out a, a product, you know what, go see them. Because at least you're getting to see something, at least you're getting to see these bands, any band, these musicians put on a show for the music that we like and listen to all the time. So yeah, it may sound hypocritical, but it, it more about kind of picking on one or two bands that should have just wrapped it up and not come back. But <laughs> for the most part, we're it's it's the time of life to celebrate this music and enjoy it for what it's worth. I I that's what I have to say about it. What do you got as a final word? I mean, in the similar vein, I guess the same thing. Um, you're, some of these bands put out some crappy albums. Let's just be honest. But for the most part, even if they put out some crappy albums, there's some good stuff in there. There's not many of them we talked about that just didn't have anything worth looking into. Um, so... I think there's a lot of people who get into this mindset of, you know, I either like a band or I don't. But I don't think that's the way to think about it in a lot of ways. Like, sometimes a band has one album that's amazing. And that's that's all that's necessary. Listen to that album. Enjoy that album. You don't have to be, like, so set on... I only it, like I like this band and I I like everything they do cuz sometimes bands put out crappy music but you know it doesn't mean you can't wear their t-shirt or go to their show or you know enjoy what they what they put out so just be a little bit more open minded I will say that doing this podcast I've found a lot of music that I never thought I would enjoy because I didn't think a band was all that great or whatever but then i ended up liking them a lot so uh, you know british or the the new wave of british heavy metal has kind of um gone under the radar to me as a concept sometimes i like a lot of bands that were part of it but i never really thought of a, a you know it as a whole and i found some of the bands we talked about in the first episode and i said wow this is somebody I've never even heard of, and this is kind of a cool album. Like, I we make, uh, you know, um, Kenneth and I make jokes about Clovenhoof all the time because it's just, it's kind of <clears throat> silly, right? But that first <laughs> yeah. album is actually worth checking out. So, um, you know, open your mind and check out some good music. So one last thing before we close this out and we head into our big four um, new wave of British heavy metal bands. Uh, I did want to mention that you know while I was researching this, I obviously um, was looking at some compilation CDs and some albums and stuff like that that I wanted to share with you guys listening out there. So if you guys want to get your own 
copies of it or get your own uh, version of whatever it is, you know, like put together your own uh, compilation. Um, I, I, I wanted to let you know about a few compilations that I am aware of. So the first one is called The New Wave of British Heavy Metal uh, 79 Revisited. That was uh, compiled by Lars Ulrich. Uh, it contains tracks from Diamond Head, Zaxxon, Def Leppard, Iron Maiden, Girl School, Tigers of Pantang, Sledgehammer, Gaskin, Angel Witch, Blitzkrieg, Witchfinder General, Fist, Praying Mantis, Vardis, Holocaust, Jaguar, Raven, and Sweet Savage. There's a lot of bands on there. Uh, it's a two-CD set. It is actually out of print, but a few years ago, uh, they released it or re-released it on vinyl. So um, it's hard to get, but it is available out there. You could probably get it through the usual um, uh, uh, aftermarket sellers or what do they call those? Um, secondhand. Resellers. Yeah. The resellers. So it's available through eBay. You can get it through Discogs or other used um, channels like that. Uh, but the album... Uh, highlights some of the better bands from that era. So that's really cool. Um, another one that's out there is called Lightning to the Nations. They're so original with these titles. <laughs> Lightning to the Nations, uh, New Wave of British Heavy Metal 25th Anniversary Collection. It actually spells new album more than the whole thing out there. And that is a very extensive compilation featuring the usual suspects, a lot of the bands that we've already talked about, along with some of the rarer bands such as Ethel the Frog, Girl, Quartz, Tyson Dog, Lone Wolf, Tarot, Steel, and several other bands that we have not mentioned uh, over these three episodes, um, but are still part of that scene. Um, that, to me, is the next best compilation after uh, 79 Revisited. That one is also out of print. It's hard to get, but you can get it through eBay, Discogs, or other, the other used channels. Um and then uh, there are two more. One is called uh, New Album, New Wave of British Heavy Metal Initials. Uh, it's a compilation consisting of, like I said, The Usual Suspects. That one is currently available through Amazon. Um, that is just a straight-up name for it, N-W-O-B-H-M. Um, and that, again, contains a lot of the people that we've talked about the, uh, over these past three episodes. And finally, um, one thing that we kind of... I, I don't know if we touched upon it or not, but I know I was listening to it while we were talking about the first episode. Um, is the Neat Singles Collection, Volumes 1 through 3. Um, that is an extremely extensive collection of new wave of British heavy metal songs that were all released by Neat Records between 1979 and 1987. Um, it is extreme, extremely rare to find right now. It is out of print, available through all the, the usual, uh, you know, um, Ebay resellers, and eBay's, stuff. and all, and 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 uh, Discogs, but that one's really unique because it it also, I mean, besides all the singles, I mean, just think about all the singles that they released of all these bands that were on Neat Records. I mean, there's stuff from Venom on there, there's stuff from Raven on there, uh, so it it's got some pretty famous bands that um, were that basically got signed off of Neat Records. So there's a lot of cool things on there, a lot of hard to find stuff out there that that you you can't get anymore it's on this collection so that's pretty cool so yeah I pretty cool yeah so I, I think all these things if you get if for anybody who wants to listen to this stuff it's out there i mean besides consuming it on spotify and apple music and google music or whatever it is that you listen to um this is these are if you want to get your hands on something this is what you want to get your hands on so all right well after basically six hours and three episodes, we're down to the 
um, last of the big fours based on this series. We're at the big four of the new wave of British heavy metal bands. Um, so we picked Zax in the first, uh, last time, and I believe it was, oh no, Zax in the first time, Diamond Head the second time, and now we're going to come around with picking our big four bands from this era. Um, I believe I've gone first a couple times. Why don't you go ahead and go first on this one? Okay. Um, this really wasn't that hard for me. Um, my number four, I'm going with Diamond Head. So, yeah, we talked about some of that middle stuff was not that great, but that first album was really impactful for me. I had it on CD for a long time. Now, kind of funny story, I was taking it out of my CD player, and after searching for that album and you know, finally finding a copy and I was excited. I listened to it a lot and, you know, I was taking it out of the CD player. It snapped in half and I was, I was just bummed out and I couldn't find another copy. I went back to where I bought it, Diamond Head Records, funny enough, um, which is no longer around today, which is sad, but that was my record store when I was a kid. Um, so I went back there, couldn't find a copy, and I got home, and I was just bummed out. And there was this horsefly flying around my my uh, office at home, and it was just bothering my sister. And I took, I wasn't even looking. I did the coolest thing I've ever done, and I'm sorry, PETA people that are listening to this, but uh, I I took half the CD without even looking, and I sliced the fly got it like against the bookshelf and i was like how did i even do that so diamond head uh you know took out a horsefly but (laughs) Uh, (laughs) my number three is angel witch um they're a band that i was aware of for a long time but over time They've really grown on me, and the new era of music, really pretty much everything they've done, I actually really enjoy. Um, there's, there's very distinct eras of the band and sounds because, you know, you'd break up and reform and this and that, but um, I really like pretty much everything they've done. Uh, they're a great band and, um, you know, definitely worth checking out. I think all five albums. Uh, my number two uh, kind of surprised me um, because... I it, it's a band I don't often specifically think of, but their their history, their continuity, their every like just being around and waving the banner of 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 new album I think is just important, and that's Saxon. Um, I'm more of a fan of the the newer stuff, as I mentioned previously, um, but those early albums are really classic, and. Uh, I, hopefully someday I get to see them because I've never seen them live, but um, just amazing catalog, uh, great continuity, a band that even though they delved into a little bit of, of different stuff, more commercial um, in, in the eighties, but like for the most part, they've stayed really consistent. They never went outside the bounds and said, we need to put out a thrash album or we need to put out a grunge album or, you know, something like that. They have just stayed true to themselves, and that's amazing. And my number one, it's got to come as no surprise, it's Iron Maiden. Um, I've mentioned many times that they're my favorite band or one of my favorite bands. Um, so I, I don't think I need to go into to more detail on that, but uh, Iron Maiden is my number one. All right. I that, That's a... a- 
pretty cool list. Um, not surprising, but at the same time, um, a little different from mine. Um, we actually have 50% crossover. Um, so you will get to hear mine now. Um, my number four, um, pick is girl school. And the reason I pick girl school is because they have basically been there from the beginning all the way up until now, not much change. I mean, they had a little bit of, of change when they tried to be a little more commercial in the eighties, but you know, who didn't out of all these bands? Um, so they, uh, they've, didn't find the success they were looking for, came back to England, and basically have maintained themselves ever since then. Um, number three for me, um, oddly enough, even though I kind of ragged a little bit about one of their, their members or former members, Tigers of Pantang. Oh, I thought um, I thought you were going to say... Uh, Oliver Dawson's Oliver accent. Dawson's accent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's two members of their band. I, uh, no, I didn't actually think you were going to say that. but <laughs> no. Tigers of Pantang. Um, basically, they finally figured themselves out after that whole period. I mean, you have some, the first two albums really good the third one eh, okay they kind of lost themselves in the middle there and it took all the way to 2016 to really figure out who they were they've done a good job with that so i give them that credit so they're my number three new album band uh number two for me um is zaxon um just like your number two they've remained steady through all these years and have flown the flag for new album flown the flag for metal they've gone heavy they've gone uh, soft a little bit. Again, another band that tried to get commercial in the 80s uh, and kind of left it behind. So but so kudos to them for still being around to this day. And um, last but not least, my number one, same as your number one, Iron Maiden. What else can be said? I mean, they are just simply amazing and they continue to get better. So that's, that's crazy to think about. All right. That's a good list. All right. Well, that's our big four new wave of British heavy metal bands. And that's the end of the series. And that's the end of this week's show. So remember, click like or subscribe, download the show on your favorite podcast platform, and you get to listen to us all the time whenever you want. And don't forget you can interact with us by commenting on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can send us a DM as well. If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment, or you can send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. So remember to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of myself and Kenneth, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya.